Uh, welcome back, everyone, to A Love's Labour's Watch, your favourite pop culture women-focused podcast. How are you? I am good. How are you, Francesca? I'm good. I'm excited to be back. And yeah. I think we have a great episode lined up today. Yeah. So we have a debut author on the podcast today. We were lucky enough to interview Sophie Haydock, who is a London-based author who's just written a great new book called The Flames. Sophie is has a background in journalism. She's worked at Sunday Times, Tatler. Financial Times, Guardian Weekend, and she also has a very popular Instagram account, which has a kind of link to her book, which I will let you explain, Helena. Do you want to tell us a little bit about The Flames before we dive into the interview? Yes, absolutely. The Flames is centred around the life and kind of like flames, i.e. muses, Mm -hmm. women, lovers of the Austrian artist Egon Schiele, who uh, was working around the early 1900s, around the First World War. And he was quite famous and remains famous and infamous for quite revealing portrayals of men and women in his painting and in his art. Uh, Sophie goes into more detail on that. Equally, uh, the book itself doesn't really focus on his perspective. It looks at the lives of four women surrounding him. Um, We've got a sister, a couple lovers, a wife. So Sophie, as she said, was aiming to sort of look at Egon Schiele's work from the perspective of those who were in it. Just we have some really interesting discussion about where she got her ideas from and also what she was hoping we could take away from her perspective so yeah it was a really great book to read we both really liked it mm. and yeah we hope that you enjoy the interview so after our discussion with Sophie Haydock we are going to be talking about season two of yes you guessed it Bridgerton, Bridgerton. which is back <laughs> with a bang so stay tuned for that uh, but for now let's get into our chat with Sophie let's go Thing that I usually say to people is have you heard of the artist Egon Schiele and more often than not people haven't um, but when they haven't I kind of fill them in and I say Egon Schiele was an Austrian artist he lived more than a hundred years ago um, he was very charismatic he was very controversial so all this stuff is uh, very much ripe for fiction he had a very uh, tumultuous life And the book really is about the four women who inspired his greatest artwork. So we get four sections of the book told from slightly different perspectives. So we have um, a section that is dedicated to the kind of viewpoint of his younger sister, Gertrude. And Gertrude was um, the artist's earliest model. And she and him had a very intimate bond. And they certainly... uh, had a very close relationship. And I think uh, it's interesting that Gertrude went on when she was a little bit older to pose for her brother in the nude. So that's something that kind of gets explored in the flames. And also we have Vali Nurtzel, who is a model who Sheila was reported to have met in the studio of Gustav Klimt. So again, another, another kind of lovely link to this great Austrian artist who most people have heard of Gustav Klimt. Um, and Vali Nurtzel stands by Egon Schiele during his kind of darkest days when he is um, in prison. He spends time in prison and Vali stands by him and she really um, is very loyal. And it's fair to say that he treats her very badly in return. Um, and then the final two sections are seen through the eyes of two sisters. So we have Edith and Adele Harms, um, both of whom live uh, in an apartment opposite the artist when he returns to Vienna as a slightly older man in his kind of 
um, early to mid twenties. And they meet this very charismatic artist who lives across the street. And the sisters who are from quite a well-to-do family, they very much compete with each other for his attention. So um, one of them does become his wife and that tension really kind of fuels the very, uh, the, the drive of the novel, you know, this kind of sisterly rivalry as they compete with each other to, to kind of capture this man's heart. So we very much get these four stories of um, very different women who have very different um, kind of, they have very different motivations for what they want out of life, but they all, they all love the artist, but they are all tested to their absolute limits as they, they find out what they're willing to, to betray, whether that's betray themselves or betray each other, how far they're willing to go to kind of keep hold of this man's attention. So it's, it's very much laden with uh, lust and betrayal. Um, and the question really at the heart of it is what, what will we sacrifice to achieve our heart's desires? Yeah, and it's, it's such a brilliant premise for a novel. And as you say, some people might not have heard of Egon Chalet. Am I saying that right? You are, yeah, you absolutely are. Okay. <laughs> I had to Google it a while ago. And after all this time of writing it, I was thinking, I don't actually know how to say it. So yeah, that's absolutely yeah. right. I figured you, you would be the expert. Yeah, so some people may not have heard of him um, or um, certainly not be so much aware of his life and, and the women who were behind the paintings. We wondered... How long have you been aware of his work and what was the inspiration for the novel? Was there a particular spark or is it something that's been bubbling under the surface for some time? Yeah, that's such a good question. So I have a very specific date when this novel, the idea for the novel came to my mind. It was back in January 2015 and I had been invited to an exhibition at the Courtauld Gallery um, of Egon Chile's work. And it was the last weekend, you know, this show was just about to close. I'd completely neglected to go along myself, but a friend was visiting from Yorkshire. She was coming to the weekend, uh, to London for the weekend, and she invited me along to this exhibition. So I owe, I owe my friend a great deal because without her, I just wouldn't have even uh, known these women's names or I wouldn't have plunged into this very rich and evocative world. So it was at that point, um, gosh, seven years ago now that I first uh, realised that there was this very rich seam of untold stories within Egon Schiele's artwork. But it goes back even further than that because when I was at university, I went to university in Leeds and I studied English and French and I actually only, only after I'd been to the exhibition did I remember that I'd had a postcard of Egon Schiele's work uh, post kind of taped to my wall in my final year at university. And I kind of went back through all my papers and I was really searching in all these old letters and things and found this postcard. Um, and it was a portrait of Adele Harms. And I must have looked at this beautiful picture of this woman in her underwear hundreds of times, you know, during my final year. And it was only it was only once I started digging into their stories and doing the research that I realized that Adele Harms was um, Egon Schiele's sister-in-law. And that made the, the portrait of this woman who is almost nude, 
you know, she's really revealing herself. It's a very famous portrait where she's got her legs open and her petticoats are ruffled in this very suggestive way. Um, and I realized that she's not posing for her lover or, you know, this isn't just an anonymous model. This is her posing for her sister's husband. And that kind of realization of the dynamics at play really surprised me. So I, I knew that I had a lot of connection with these models and Adele in particular is somebody who I've always felt um, a very deep with. So I think, yeah, I just, there's all these layers that just came together and made researching and writing the book, it really fueled me. Yeah, it's so interesting that there were these serendipitous moments where you realize kind of afterwards how much, you know, the work of Egon Schiller and uh, Adele in particular, sort of part of your life. Um, and coming on to sort of the actual, you know, process, you know, you've started the book, you realize there's that kind of impetus there. Um, what was the, the research like? How did you find it um, as a kind of like debut novelist as well? How did you find the research process, getting the book ready to sort of be written as a historical fiction novel as well? Yeah, I think there's massive pros and cons to taking on a project um, like this. So historical fiction is fantastic because you have you have the bare bones of a story. You have the names, you have the narrative arcs, you have all the, um, the twists and turns in a story that I think it would be really difficult to just pluck out of thin air, especially as a debut novelist. So um, I was really excited that I had uh, the framework for for what felt like for what felt like it could be a really compelling book and um and that's fantastic but then you get really bogged down with historical facts and trying to be really true to the story so you could lose i mean you could lose all the hours in a year just trying to find out all these tiny little details that might amount to one sentence or one word or tiny little things that just get cut in the end anyway but just that do help to paint a portrait of, of what the time might have been like so the double challenge was writing a story that was set more than 100 years ago and set in a different country um, these definitely presented uh, difficulties and I think that uh, my experience as a journalist so I, I worked as a journalist for more than a decade and I've always interviewed people and I've always really been quite good at um, doing interviews in which you ask lots of questions and then you reimagine somebody's story. So I did lots of first person interviews and I think that made the process of getting inside these women's heads much easier because I was able to um, ask them questions. You know, I really did treat them as if they were an interviewee and I'd say what would it have felt like to take your clothes off your brother what would it have felt like to take your clothes off your brother-in-law and I'd kind of go much deeper than that but then I would really try and get their voice and get that down on paper and see the world through their eyes so I think uh, I think it helped me just to have the framework of historical fiction and it was only really um, as an aside it was only really when I let go of the facts that I was able to really inject um, much more momentum into the story. So I tried, I tried for so long to be 100% accurate and not to say anything that might not have happened and to be really cautious with um, real lives because these women really lived. But 
at some point you have to say this is fiction and this is my interpretation of events and actually I want to tell a story that will be gripping and that will make people want to keep turning the page and will be really memorable. So once I let go of that need to, to be perfectly accurate, then I think the story flowed much more naturally and organically. And you focus on these four different women. So we'd love to kind of get into them a bit more and you tell their stories one after the other. So if we wanted to ask you, how did you decide what order to tell their stories in? Because it's not necessarily chronological um, insofar as when they met the artist. Yeah, um, I think I think it was, again, it's hard to trace back the threads of where a story idea begins or why you decide to start with a specific um, narrative or voice. And I think for me, I always felt really clear that I was going to begin with Adele. Um, who she survived for a very long time. She was 78 when she died. And in a way it felt very natural for the story to begin with her just because she would be looking back over her life. She would be asking questions about um, her own involvement with this very prolific and controversial artist. And she had this kind of personal connection because of she, she posed for him and her sister was married to him. So that felt like a natural place. And to be honest, I think once I'd created the scenery with um, Adele as an old woman, and then we see her as a much younger woman when she had the whole world at her feet. She was very privileged. She came from a very good family. And I really think that her her fate was sad for me to see her end up with nothing, no family, no money, living in near poverty. Um, I was really interested in that sequence of events about how she might have lost all the great opportunities that had been presented to her when she was a woman in her twenties. So Adele for me really captured my imagination. And then I very quickly realized that um, most people probably wouldn't have known of Egon Schiele necessarily and they might not have his biographical information so I wanted them to take people back to his childhood which was um, you know a very it was a troubled childhood he his father had syphilis and this sent him gradually mad over the course of more than a decade um, he was a strict father he was a station master so Egon Schiele and his sister Gertrude grew up um, at the side of a busy railway station in the countryside. Um, so it was very evocative, the sound of the trains were there and Egon Schiele was trying to become this artist with all the, you know, his family were against him becoming an artist because it affected his grades at school. So, you know, there was all this lovely tension with um, the man that he was trying to become. And that really made me reflect on the woman that, the young, you know, Gertrude at the time was a child, and then who she was trying to become simultaneously. So that felt like a natural moment to get his biographical information in. And from there, we really progress quite chronologically in the sense that um, when Egon Schiele moves to Vienna, he meets Valley um, as a young man. And then after that, he meets the sisters. So we, we kind of loop back into Adele's story about two thirds of the way through the book. And that kind of propels the last section where we see Egon with his wife and her, her version of events as she 
struggles to adapt to being the wife of an artist. And I think going back to your other question about the research and, and how, how that worked, I mean, on a practical level, I interviewed um, a huge number of people who um, are experts in the world of Egon Chile. That might be um, art historians or curators, um, people who are just enthusiasts or experts in the field. And I also traveled to Vienna and the surrounding areas that were associated with Egon Chile and the women in his life. So that was really exhilarating to, um, to go to the station where he grew up, um, to go to the small town in uh, Chesky Krumlov, which is now in Prague, and to, to kind of soak in the atmosphere and what it must have been like. So there was lots of practical uh, research as well as the imaginative side of things. You mentioned quite a lot of, you know, the different characters in the book, many of them being women. And I think you've already mentioned the complexity and conflict between lots of these women that you you describe. You know, you've got the sisters and you've got the, the lovers and you've also got the sister of Egon himself. And you also have there's mothers in there and children and daughters and things like that. And I was thinking, what, how, what was it like? You know, you're sort of sketching them as real people, but also as kind of rivals with each other. You know, naturally, that's kind of how, you know, people may see them, I suppose. So what was it like sort of were you trying to negotiate that conflict between them or do you see it as kind of more natural that they would come up together and sort of bump up against each other and get each other's way a bit? You know? Yeah, I think that's a really, uh, it's a good point because obviously uh, novels demand tension and the more tension that's in a book, you know, the more you want to keep reading. So straight away, you know that these women in fiction and in real life, they didn't just accept that they were discarded they didn't just accept that oh now that man who I've been living with has met somebody else and I'm going to quietly uh, disappear into the background um, I think it's safe to assume that there was lots of jealousy and there was some real love triangles and there was lots of betrayal and I think um, you know the more you can draw on that you know, and I don't think it was a stretch to say that the sisters were competitive and that they would perhaps have um, competed in this way for this young man's attention. Obviously, that's not documented, but what is documented is that Adele posed for her brother-in-law in this way, um, in a very intimate way. And later in life, when she was a much older woman, she did say that she'd had an affair with him. And this may have been misinterpreted, in the sense of she might have meant he courted them both when they were younger women, or it might have meant that she slept with her sister's husband. I, there's, we can't tell for sure, but what we can certainly um, kind of draw from that is this lovely complex relationship between, um, between Adele and Edith, her sister, and um, with the artist, and how that would have overlapped with Valley who was very loyal and how that would have overlapped with Gertrude, who um, certainly in my world at least seemed quite possessive of her brother and seemed to really want to hold on to this very intimate bond that she had with him, even though they were both getting older and they couldn't quite maintain that very um, intimate childhood bond that they'd enjoyed for so long. So yeah, I think it's, it's easy to when you have so many very strong-willed characters and they're all so 
um, fierce and they're also strong-minded, it's very easy for those connections just to take on a life of their own. Yeah, I liked how um, you didn't, well, I certainly didn't really find myself rooting for any one of the women to, you know, get the man. You know, there was none of that. It was more just, as you say, exploring their motivations and their limitations of growing up in the time in, in which they were living. And on a different note, but related, you have an Instagram account as well, which is also devoted to Chalet's women and spotlighting some of the paintings and some of the stories behind the paintings as well. So we wondered yeah. how has that account grown in tandem with the novel and what do you hope that account's impact could be? I know you have many followers. Starting an account like this when I might have, you know, 100 followers and that's grown to more than 100,000. I think I'm on about 114,000 followers now. Um, and it's just been really interesting because you get feedback all the time on the artworks that I'm posting. Um, some of them are very explicit you know, and I've, I think re more recently, I've become a bit more cautious about posting some of the most um, explicit artworks, just because Instagram's changed, but also I feel nervous about putting out um, works that really kind of fetishize or, or, I don't know, kind of show women in such a, a sexualized way. Um, some of Egon Schiller's models were very young and that's obviously problematic and um, it's a it's a interesting thing to see how people respond as well you know some people are very supportive they say you know art is art and um, pornography for example is in the eye of the beholder um, and I I would say 99% of of the of the interactions I have are extremely positive um, the fans just seem to be, the fans of Egon Chile just seem to be really open-minded and enthusiastic. And I feel like I've learned a lot from doing an account like this, posting pretty much every day for four or five years, I think now. Um, and it's just, it's really fascinating to see how people connect, who people connect with, which of the models people feel an affinity with. Very often it's Bali um, because she, she has such a great story and she behaved so very nobly and I think people admire her um, and I also think people feel excited about finding out um, either new stories about the models that they might not have known before or seeing uh, artwork that might be more rare and hasn't been in the public eye before so yeah it's just a really vibrant thriving community and it feels like such a privilege to to have all that you know, as part of the book and the awareness of, of the women who are in Egon Schiele's life. I mean, Egon Schiele, I think I've sort of been aware of him, but not really. And then deep diving into his work was really interesting. And I think that um, Egon's paintings and their meaning is something that's a bit contested. And I think even the book, it's contested, right? Like uh, Adela kind of wants desperately to be painted to show her inner life and to show the woman that she wants to be while for other people in the novel it's you know straight pornography and, and Egon is attacked and sort of vilified for it um, and kind of tracking forward into the present you've talked about already how people are really in work and you've seen that on your Instagram um, sort of how do you think his work kind of should resonate today or how might it resonate today and you know how should we think about Sheila's work particularly given as you've talked about so much the real lifeness of his subjects. Yeah. 
That's, that's a really good question. And I think again, that um, his work is, is shockingly relevant a hundred years after his death. He still has the power to really uh, shock society. And I think that's an incredible testament to his talent. Um, I still have posts removed, not, not, not all the time because I've become a bit more cautious, but I still have, um, if I post something, it can still be censored. So I think that that says a lot about how much he was pushing the boundaries and how much he was really trying to redefine our understanding of um, sexuality and gender. You know, a lot of his models can be seen in quite a ambiguous way. Um, and he really gives women in some of his works a kind of uh, power that hadn't been seen before at that time. I think it's really important to remember that he was very radical. He was very young. He was a young man when he was making some of his most exceptional artwork. And I'm, I mean, he was 20 years old. He was 21 years old when he was doing um, some of the, the most explicit works. And it's, it's important to think of what might've happened if he'd lived to be a man in his seventies, you know, if he'd been, the same, had the same lifespan as Picasso or Matisse. We might have seen him develop into a really different, um, a different artist. He was on the cusp of becoming a father for the first time. He was married. He'd um, been a soldier in the First World War and that was just coming to an end. And I think all these influences would have really changed his artwork and changed our perception of him as an artist. Um, but the work that we do have really spans about a decade and it's challenging it is deliberately provocative but it's also very I think people really connect with it because it's so raw and because the depictions of the human body are so um they're not they're not kind of idealized you know the women's bodies they can be very thin and they can be very uh elongated and amputated in lots of ways but they're also they feel very real um certainly to me and I think that's what makes modern uh, audiences connect with this artwork like this because it just it's so immediate it's so sensual it's so powerful and it really knocks at our expectations of of what um the human body is and what uh what our potential is I think your your book, which obviously shines a light, as we've been discussing on these untold stories of the women behind Chile's paintings, it seems to be part of a, a wider movement in pop culture more broadly, uh, which seeks to reevaluate women who've been seen just as footnotes in a more famous man's history. Other examples that came to mind for us were Hallie Rubenfold's The Five, which is about the women who were murdered by Jack the Ripper, um, and also the musical Six, which is about the, the six wives of, of Henry VIII. Um, and there are many other examples as well. And we wondered, why do you think there's been this renewed interest in untold female stories? And also from your perspective as someone who's at the forefront of it, uh, what do you think is the importance of that? Yeah, that's um, interesting. I One thing that sprung to mind as you were speaking was um, Naomi Wood's novel, Mrs. Hemingway. I don't know if you read that, that came out, I, I think I read it in the weeks before I went to the exhibition in 2015. And this novel about the, I think it was four or five wives of Ernest Hemingway. Um, Naomi Wood had done this fantastic uh, 
tale in which each woman got a different section and she told her version of events married to this great writer and I think that was very fresh in my mind when I came to working out a um, a shape for for the flames um, and I've always been really drawn to stories that shed a light a new light on on people from the past that we think we know or uh, stories that would otherwise have been forgotten so I I don't know necessarily if it's a new thing I mean I think ever since I was a teenager I've I remember another book that stands out very much is I Was Amelia Earhart by Jane Mendelssohn. That was one of the formative books that I read where I realized that you could um, take a famous person and imagine their lives and retell their story. Um, so that's that's 20 years ago. And I know, you know, Girl with a Pearl Earring does a very similar thing and that was of the same kind of era. So I think that people have always been drawn to uh, stories of women where the woman is defying the expectations of her era and she is, um, yeah, she, we understand more about the world by seeing it through her eyes. And I just think that it's, there are so many great books coming out now that, that do that. Um, and I'm really glad that The Flames is, is part of that, part of that movement of, of shedding light on untold stories or stories that would otherwise just not be remembered because these women, certainly Sheila's women have been seen very explicitly, but their voices just haven't been heard. Um, and that's been the case for more than a century. So I think there's a really rich vein of, of stories that can still be tapped into. And of course, the same story can be told in so many different ways. So um, there's just so much potential there, I feel. Just as a final question, and we always like to ask this of our guests, the, what books would you recommend to us and to our audience? And also what film, TV, theatre, anything else you've been enjoying in the world of pop culture that you think other people should also embrace? Mm. Well, I'm going to jump right in and say um, there are so many incredible debut novels coming out in 2022. So I'm going to use this opportunity to shout about the ones that I've particularly enjoyed. Um, there's Lizzie Pook's uh, debut novel, Moonlight and the Pearless Daughter, which is out um, in March. Uh, Melissa Fu, who I know through the Word Factory, uh, which is a short story organisation I work for, she has written a beautiful novel called Peach Blossom Spring. Um, Nikki May, who is a fantastic writer who is also published by Doubleday, she's written a very funny and engaging novel called Wahala, which I think everybody should go out and read and I'm sure has, is on your radar already. Annie Kirby, who's written a great novel called Hollow Sea, and Law Van Rensburg, um, whose book Nobody But Us is out any day now. And there are so many, there are so many other debut authors I could um, pluck out to say they're fantastic and that I'm really excited to read their work. But these are just a kind of handful of them who I think um, I, I kind of have got to know a bit more closely over, over the process of, of publication. Um, in terms of films oh it's a good question I I my husband and I go to the cinema every week we have a, a really nice independent cinema opposite our flat that does a cheap night on Mondays so um I'm just trying to think what we've seen there recently that was particularly good 
obviously the new Almodovar film um, with Penelope Cruz is fantastic. So I definitely recommend that. Um, and then in terms of what was the other question, the literature? Oh, well, I mean, that's that's a great selection, but yeah, for certainly I just want to add to that list. Um, you know, I think my brain's them. gone blank now. <laughs> no, that was that was a great great set of um, books. And it's always um, difficult when someone asks you and you think, no, I've got nothing. I can't think yeah. of a single book I've ever read. But yeah, that's that's uh, it's a good question. So thank you. Oh well, thank you so much for your time today. Yeah. It's such a privilege for me to to be part of this podcast and to be talking about these women who who are just so exceptional and mean so much to me. And yeah, I really I'm really grateful. So thank you. Thank you so much to Sophie for coming on the show. Uh, we had such a great time talking to her. I think particularly because she has this such, I find such an intriguing story of how she found Egon Schiele and how that mm. transformed into the book itself. And we mentioned comparisons with the five in terms of taking these women's stories and re-centering them yeah. as because they are the center of their own lives given the fact that they were alive so I think it's an important message as well as just really interesting being Egon Schiele's work into the kind of public milieu and the zeitgeist. The Flames is out in the UK now it was published in March 2022 so you can check it out in all good bookstores as well as the audiobook is available and the ebook and yeah, so wherever you want to find it, you can give it a listen or give it a read. Yeah. If you're interested in looking into the Instagram about Egon Chile that Sophie was talking about, it is at Egon Chile's Women. And the Chile is spelt S-C-H-I-E-L-E. So Egon Chile's Women. Um, I follow it and it's nice to get a bit of art history in your daily life as well. Absolutely. And you'll be in good company with... Uh... Channing Tatum. Oh and, yeah. Uh, Anthony from Queer Eye, who also follow the account. So yeah, uh, it's exciting to see where she'll take it next and what she might do next. So yeah, thank you again, Sophie, for speaking to us. And speaking of Anthony's. Oh, <laughs> such a good scene. I was waiting, I was waiting. I was like, Ooh. you just really chuffed with yourself. Well. <laughs> yeah, I am, I am. Uh, yeah, speaking of Anthony's, we're going to talk about Bridgerton season two. So stay tuned. Strap in. Ooh. <laughs> Bridgerton season one was released in December 2020. We were all in the height of COVID-19 lockdowns mm. and it was this sumptuous, luscious form of escapism that we, when I say we, I really kind of mean a lot of people watching <laughs> yeah. the show, we all kind of dived into and really enjoyed. And it really catapulted the stars, Phoebe Deneva and Reggae John Page to stardom. Right. And also, I think, kind of reframed the concept of the period drama and the romance novel into the mainstream. Which, I mean, I, again, I'm very outspoken about all of this. Well, yeah. So, Helena, I know we discussed this in our Bridgerton episode the first time around, but you have a long-standing history with the Bridgerton <laughs> series that start that very much predates 2020. Yes. Do you want to just tell us a little bit about that before we dive into this new series? Yeah. Um, it's less nefarious than it sounds. Um, <laughs> it's funny. I always start the story with my Palm Pilot that I had when I was like in year eight or something. And on this Palm Pilot was Julia Quinn's The Duke and I, which is obviously the first Bridgerton series. <laughs> and I remember reading it on my Palm Pilot, and this screen is like. Um, it's like flip phone size screen. It's not big, right? Yeah. And I remember highlighting bits that I liked pre-Kindle, you know? 
And I read this whole thing when I was 13 years old. Possibly my parents should have stopped me from doing that. Oh, well. Um, and that really began like a, a genre of novels that I've always loved. I've read like over 200 romance novels. Mm. So I'm very aware of the romance novel genre. It's tropes, it's men, it's women, the storylines it does, all that stuff. So when I saw they were doing Bridgerton, I actually wasn't so excited because I was like, mm. oh, like I read like six, I think, of the Bridgerton series novels. I got a bit bored by the end because they've become a bit samey. Sorry, Julia Quinn. But still, it's kind of like, I was, I was apprehensive. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, and I think that what the great thing about the series, what Shonda and her production team have got is you actually have like an understanding and a care for what the romance novel is all about, mm, which is everything being a bit silly. You know, like you don't read a romance novel to be challenged. You read it to be taken in and hugged and made to feel really happy because everything is a bit silly. There are low stakes. It's not real life. And I think Bridgeton does a good job of removing you from that. Um, and also all the beautiful people. Like everyone's beautiful. Oh, yeah. And I think um, one of the things I really noticed in this new season was everything, every single thing on screen is beautiful. Yeah. The people, obviously, the sets, the costumes, even the lighting. Yeah. Like, there were so many beautifully framed shots that really stuck with you and really also draw you in to yeah. this beautiful heightened world. And what was interesting is, so season one was such a success and it focused on these two characters, Daphne and Simon, Daphne Bridgerton and Simon, the Duke who she falls for and they have this kind of fake relationship that becomes real and that is the focus. And there are other characters who we get to know, the rest of her family, but really they are the central pairing. At the end, they have their happy ending and then we were told season two is going to be about a new member of the Bridgerton family, which follows the focus of the books as you oh yeah the second book is all about Viscount who loved me is indeed about Anthony and the story does track you know uh he meets these two sisters one of whom he wants to marry but actually has more of a connection with the older one the older one is quite prickly actually she did base Kate on the taming of the shrew Kate yeah you might see I mean if you watch it it's pretty obvious (laughs) you know this like what willful woman who won't be tamed it's interesting because like that was very much the template that Shondaland aka Shonda Rhimes production company were following when they adapted this series but I think people were still a little bit surprised that they didn't keep the focus on Daphne and the Duke because other adaptations of kind of romance novels there haven't obviously been particularly that very many the other one I was just thinking of was uh, Virgin River in Virgin River rather than focusing each season on a different couple they kept the central couple the Mm. center and then they just introduced the other couples as side stories you can see there would be a temptation for them doing that with Bridgerton, but no, they stuck to their guns and they decided that this new season is about Anthony and Kate. Yeah. Well, I think they did a really great job of recentering the story around Anthony while also keeping up the cast of lovable supporting characters that they've introduced and yeah, also giving kind of um, different characters some, some new storylines. And but I loved there was more of Lady Danbury. Yeah. And also the Queen, what an icon. She's so cool. She's great. I'm very excited because apparently they're doing like a prequel series about her <gasps> as well, which is going to be great. That'd be so cool. Yeah. I agree with that. Um, and then they also kind of keep momentum going forward in terms of like what the other siblings, Bridgerton siblings are up to. So there's potential for that kind of being fleshed out later on. Yeah, absolutely. And I do think that the romance genre, yeah, Bridgerton has very much captured what it is, which mm-hmm. I, I think is really good, including how like silly a lot of it is. And I want to come to that. So, yeah. you know, there's the, this season more than ever really highlighted to me, like the amount of silly situations, the amount of times Anthony and Kate have to reach something together and then look at each other 
is ridiculous. Well, there's right? the moment where he sniffs her. Yeah. Like, but the thing is that what I will say is, you, as you say, they really they 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 dive into that. They do not shy away from what people love yeah. about really anything romantic, like romantic comedy, but particularly as you say, the romance genre with all its tropes and hallmarks. And silliness, really. But the actors play it totally straight and really sell it. Yeah. So I think that combination for me was what worked. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, speak a bit more about that kind of silliness oh. and heightened reality. Yeah. I mean, one example, right, is uh, you know when they uh when they you know their 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 croquet balls just happen to end up in the same part of the woods, in the same swamp, <laughs> and they have to walk into the swamp and they both fall into the swamp because and, of course, yeah. And it's like these scenarios don't happen to normal people. Like you don't, you know, the amount of times she goes somewhere and he's already there, like. I mean, I'm sorry, I've tried running into people I have a crush on who I live in the same city with. You cannot do it. But when it's like, when she goes back home and then Anthony and the ring man are there to try and like size the ring for her oh, sister. Yeah, it's like, you should just put the ring on. Oh, yeah. oh, and then he puts the ring on her finger and it's like, oh, wow, it looks good. And then the ring gets stuck on her finger. Like, these scenarios don't happen in real life. And I kind of think some of the joy of romance novels is how, you know, when you're, you know, in love with someone or when you are thinking about someone or where you're sort of having a daydream, just a romantic way. And um, I don't know if anyone else does this, but I do. And you just imagine these ridiculous situations, which never yeah, happen. Yeah. But the whole point is it's fun to imagine. And I think that like these characters like get into these ridiculous situations, but actually it's, I can suspend my disbelief mm -hmm. because it's, it fits the theme. And you're right, the actors, I mean, I've got to say, like, the actors go for it. Jonathan Bailey, the amount of, he was channeling every single ounce of fiery look he could, like, he was just glaring slash staring at the actress playing Kate, um, the whole, the whole way through. Oh, he yeah. Channeled it. It was like, it was like brooding, like, turned up to 100. Yeah. Yeah. And it was also, what I loved about that was that both Jonathan Bailey and Simone Ashley, who played Kate, clearly knew that that was like that was the key to selling it because they don't the the difference perhaps between this series and the first season of Bridgerton is the two cannot come together until the very end right yeah yeah because the whole thing is that um Anthony wants to marry her sister and then there's this whole you know is he going to do that is he going to go through that so it's very much a will they won't they and a will they won't they when it's dragged out and not fulfilled can be they can get to a point where you're a bit like, oh, come on now. And I, I was starting to feel that, I will say. But, but I think they kind of realised that in order to kind of keep that momentum, they had to have all these moments that felt really momentous and, you know, really continue to drive the story forward yeah. and cement their connection. And the, you know, the longing looks, the importance of the longing looks cannot be underestimated. I think they really went for that. And you see so many films and TV where the chemistry kind of isn't really there. Yeah. Or even if it is there, they're not really focusing on, focusing on it. Whereas I think they really realise that, like, as silly as a lot of those moments are, like the, you know, croquet, like, falling in the mud, or, or the bit where he's just randomly, like, falls in the water. And, like, gets <laughs> he trips over a dog. <laughs> I'm like, there's nothing comes of that scene, except for the fact that she just has a bit of an oval of him. Yeah, know? literally. Um, but, but I think all of those moments were key to like selling their relationship and, and having the root for them. wish in our lives that people we had a crush on would fall in a late accident. <laughs> As you say, it's very much wish fulfillment. And like, um, I think that tracks too in the fact that the harsher realities of what it was like to live in, you know, Regency England. Typhoid falling into that pond. Yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, they are swept under the rug because the series doesn't want, you know, that to be the focus. It was also established in season one that Bridgerton is supposed to be set in a somewhat alternative reality. Bridgerton is way more diverse than your average period drama, which is brilliant to see. And its popularity suggests we've seen a much needed end to historical dramas cast entirely of white people. The casting has been described as colour conscious. So in this series, when Edwina and Kate introduce their South Asian heritage is not only mentioned, it's key to the storytelling. It's not a quote unquote realistic depiction of what it would have been like to be South Asian in England in the Regency period, but it is consciously thought out. And as we were just saying, I feel like Bridgerton knows exactly what they're doing with how they emphasize the different elements of their world that they've built. For example, they changed the last name of Edwina and Kate to the Sharmas to yeah. again suggest that South Asian descent. They discussed their movement to India. Well, we have black women at high at the highest position in society, given that the, the Queen is a black mm-hmm. woman. But the women themselves remain in their same scenario. Like the question of women's rights and women's roles remains exactly the same actually as it would have been at the time. And Eloise discusses quite a lot about mm. how she wants to attend radical you know, she wants to attend radical talks and she doesn't want to be, and she's consistently complaining all the time about the position she's in. Yeah, I think, again, that's a conscious choice to conform with the historical realities of class and gender and sexuality. Um, So it'll be interesting to see whether that's kept to going forward or whether they kind of subvert the historical realities that we know in any exciting ways well like there hasn't really been any lgbtq plus representation in the series yeah, so far good point. even though in the first series it was kind of implied that one of the brothers benedict was maybe gonna have like a thing with an artist like a male artist but then that never really happened and then this season he's very much in like heterosexual mode, mode yeah um yeah. obviously there's still scope i think for them exploring that in the future but they've kind of very much established a like heteronormative yes, you know that's what it is marriage market world well, you know, the, the key driving reason, force of a lot of the Well, it's the key reason why they can't just go and like have sex whenever they want, which obviously is what everyone wants them to do, but they don't. So that's a good, that is a good point. But it is interesting, isn't it? Eloise is a character I find really frustrating, actually, because she's so much, she's acting as the mouthpiece for the modern woman, I think. Like they have yeah. her in there, Eloise, the little sister of Daphne and Anthony, who is very like, she just refuses to get in. She refuses to get involved in any of the management stuff and she wants to be independent, but she consistently recognises she has no choice. Mm. Um, and her family, like, unquestioningly, like, don't give her any freedom either, actually. Like, the mum is very, like, trying to push her into the way that her sister is. Um, and she acts as the mouthpiece, but equally it's, like, still all she does is talk. And we did see her a bit more, like, going out there but nonetheless all of that comes to nothing you know in the end which goes to the radical which goes to a radical mm. talk and things like that and I think that that's something I find a teeny bit frustrating and that they want to have this but they you know they haven't found a different way of doing it I um, guess, yeah it will know? be it will be interesting to see I think how because in theory like Eloise will be the center of her own series at some point um and also um will we kind of know that like Penelope Eloise's best friend who's actually (gasps) baby whistle down herself we know that she is going to be the love interest for Colin one of the other Bridgerton brothers at some point I think when their theories turn up it will be interesting to see how they kind of potentially might subvert a a bit more like yeah I think the same with Benedict as well I think 
I don't know, because obviously you're more familiar with the source material than, than I am. I don't know how scandalous it would be for them to kind of change some of that. But mm. I, I think there's maybe potential there for, because those characters have already had quite a lot of screen time. We've had time to form opinions on them. Yeah. Which point. is quite different than like when we were first introduced to Daphne in season one. And that was our first real moments with her. And, and of course, we already had like Anthony has quite a kind of... Um, you know, uh, character change in some ways. From se- in season one, he was very unlikable. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, and in season two, I think they really do a lot to try and explain his behaviour, which mm. worked for me. I felt that was effective. Definitely, I agree with you. I was like, I don't know how much I can watch Anthony Pine because I really don't care. Like mm. from what how he treated Daphne in the first season, and I know he was meant to be. They had to have a villain keeping her from Simon. Yeah, like I know that, but. He was also just being a bit of a misogynistic. Oh, like, yeah, he's boy. not likable at all. No. Series, no. And anyway, but the and classic Bridgerton provides a lot of backstory to him in order to try and like humanize him. And I think it does work. I, I agree with you. And I think the actor gets a lot of credit for adding in quite a lot of vulnerability yeah. to Anthony, I've got to say, because it's quite hard to play a man who's basically being a toxic man. <laughs> but you have to see the toxic masculinity working on him. In, and then inside he's not actually toxic and I think they play that really well what does bug me is actually a more overall theme for Bridgerton is like a lack of inner monologue that I think detracts from the show a bit for me because they've got so many characters so much going on you don't really see any of their inner lives a lot mm. so sometimes the decisions they make you're left playing catch up a bit you know when you know for example I know that like Kate is constantly being mean to Anthony because she actually secretly like has the hots for him. Mm. And you know, the fact that she basically forces her sister into this wedding and kind of guilt trips Anthony into sticking with it until everything blows up is because she can't look at her feelings and she hates looking after herself. So she's being selfish and putting her wants on other people. I know that, but I've been left to sort of glean that from moments where the emotion bursts out. Yeah. And I feel like because they need to do that, to get the emotion out a lot of emotional outbursts sometimes which can make characters feel quite like contradictory there are moments particularly near the end where people kind of zig from thing to thing and I'm like especially like Anthony a little bit and to extent Kate and Edwina um you know at one point they say one thing and the next point they say another thing and you're like I'm con- did you notice in the episode six seven episode six spoiler sorry Edwina says she doesn't want to marry Anthony because she wants love mm. and the next season she says she doesn't next episode in the art gallery she says she doesn't believe in love and I was like oh, what yeah I think that's me, a difficult I, one I, yeah. I, find, I just find it a little bit difficult I'm having to catch up a little bit and I don't really know what the solution to that would be mm. um because the monologue they save really for Lady Whistledown I think and um and Penelope you see her in a life loads because it's her writing that's driving the monologue of wonderful Julie Andrews and you see her because she's the one holding all the secrets you see her in her private moments all the others you actually don't really you know when Colin wanted to go and see Marina I was like I don't really understand his motivations actually until they sort of spoke it out later so I do feel for me but again I also think that's that's how people are in the end so yeah I I feel like some of that is to kind of uphold an element of suspense yeah because I think if they told us why Colin went to see Marina then that would maybe because we were slightly seeing that through Penelope's eyes Good point. so I think they wanted us to feel that like oh he still he still cares for Marina kind of thing um, and then with Edwina's situation I think they really didn't want us to know how she was going to ultimately react to the 
whole situation at the wedding yeah, and whether she was going to go. Yeah, obviously, yeah. So in a way, it's, I think I agree. I do agree with you that like it would be nice to have a bit more insight into some of those characters because we do spend a lot of time with them. But we perhaps we see more like action than we do kind of like reflection. Yeah, so much. I feel like a lot of the a lot of the emotional delivery is done with people talking at each other. It does get to be exhausting for me at times where like the only time someone actually admits that they actually want is when like they're crying and someone's forcing them to. And you're like, you felt this way for literally six episodes. I found this in Bridgerton one too. People became kind of annoying to me because it was like, I know what you want to do. Why aren't you doing it? And I can understand like, you know, we can't control these characters and suspense is important. But I, particularly because this was so much of a slow burn, it did start to get a bit old for me a little bit. I did think that Bridgerton season one had more push but yeah. there was more happening as well. Yeah, I think um, I think I did really enjoy the central love story in Bridgeton season two. And, you know, like, as you say, Taming of the Shrew, I enjoyed those vibes. The other thing it randomly reminded me of was, you know, Hamilton. Like, yeah. the fact that in Hamilton, the musical, um, there are the, the, the sisters, and Hamilton has a relationship with kind of both of them. Oh, sure. And he has this kind of intellectual relationship with... Um, Angelica yes. and then that he's actually married to Eliza so that was kind of sort of a fun parallel and apparently the um Hamilton musical TikTok account like acknowledged this so they clearly were thinking the same thing as oh. me um but yeah I enjoyed that and I enjoyed I really enjoyed that sisterly relationship and how it was quite complex I'm um, sure actually that's a really good point I did I enjoyed that too yeah and I think that you really felt that Kate did want the best for Edwina while also I didn't feel like they were kind of sacrificing her own autonomy and her just kind of like doing what she wanted to. I thought that was quite realistically done um and yeah I, I liked how it was you know that was left somewhat open-ended in terms of um you know how does Edwina actually feel about this what does Edwina actually want um you're not sure that's a good point it was never really a love triangle for me I think they tried to position it a little bit like that but you were like with a with a romance novel you always know what was ultimately going to happen so there's yes. no kind of question that that's going to happen it's just how do we get there I, honestly I was actually a bit surprised by how far it went I forgot how far it was yeah, very scandalous I know like I've got to say like I mean Anthony like I mean I was a bit like stop dude stop stop like I think he played that quite well of like I've got in too deep and I, yeah. I liked all his interactions with his mother Violet oh, yeah. and the way that we saw that you know the grief that she felt and I think she became a more rounded character than she probably was in season one um but to kind of quickly talk about season one obviously Reggae Jean Page said that he didn't want to be well actually I don't think he ever said that he, he just said he wasn't going to be in yeah, season yeah. two yeah, and that he actually never intended to be because it was always going to be this like closed chapter one and done thing yeah uh, which you know I think everyone well people may be disappointed but everyone respected that and I think there's a lot to be said for kind of leaving something at the height of its success and not like just popping up in cameos yeah uh, however I do think it was like a little bit strange that he that his character wasn't in his it his own best friend's wedding where is he there was they never where is he barely mentioned him like which is almost like comical i think like like, the duke's away but japanese is there all the time with their little son yeah yeah it's called like augustus um it has a baby name yeah um but you're right like i totally thought that i was like i just don't really believe that i definitely think that he just he stepped away for sure because it doesn't make any sense. Yeah, like I and I, as I said, I very much respect that as like a kind of actory decision. But I do think that it was then like I found myself randomly being like, oh, I hope Daphne's okay. Like 
you know, where's her husband? We never see him. And I was like, oh, oh yeah, yeah. The whole point is romance novels is, you know, Lisa Kleepas, my favorite romance novelist. She's written several different series, um, including one called about the half this this family called the Hathaways. Mm. And there's five of them and they pop up all the time. And like the joy of these, and that's what Bridgerton's missing, sadly, with you know, Simon not being there. The joy of these shows is the books is meeting the characters you've met before in a limited way and knowing that their lives are okay. I just, I completely understand, like, if he didn't want to be in loads, but for me, it didn't really make much sense. Like, I know it was his choice and we can't do anything about it, but yeah, he was, it was just missing. It was just, it, yeah. it didn't really, it didn't really make sense. And I, I liked how Daphne was used and I liked how she kind of was a bit of a voice of reason to Anthony. Oh yeah, especially because like, she's the only sister that like, he actually like, not respects, but sees as an adult, I think. Yeah, and I also felt that their relationship had changed a bit since that since she was married, and it felt like he kind of did see her more as an equal, which obviously is problematic in its own way that he didn't before, but <laughs> it did lead to some interesting interactions between the two of them. But yeah, like it, it did feel a little lacking in a way that Simon wasn't there. On the flip side, I do think that because Reggae John Page was such like a breakout star of the first season, that if he'd kind of popped up, it might have been like that could have taken away the focus a bit from yeah. Anthony yeah, and yeah, yeah, Kate. Yeah. So you know, I, I I see both sides, but I, apparently um, Simone Ashley and Jonathan Bailey have said that they are happy to pop up in future seasons. Makes Kate sense to be honest with you. Plus, what's your very cute children? Um, right, I want to actually ask one one quite quite thing about let's 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 not go over towards Penelope. We talked about her. Let's let's go over towards the actress Featheringtons in general sure. and our fave <gasps> Sally on <laughs> who uh, essentially is um, I have Rupert Grit and Rupert Friend. That is not his name. I think he is called Rupert Friend. No, Rupert Friend is someone else. Rupert oh. Friend is um, married to Kieran Knightley. Oh, okay. Wait, let's look it up. I think it's Rupert. Rupert Young. Rupert Young. Right. So Sir Leon, aka Rupert Young, yeah. uh, plays the new Uncle Jack, new Lord Featherington, mm -hmm. who comes basically from the Americas, right, to uh, save the Featherington family from destitution. And that story is quite interesting, wasn't it? Because they were they were keeping that Featherington thing alive beyond just Penelope, because obviously barely no, no one knows that she's any of us around. Yeah, but. Um, watching the Fenton family scheme and plot was quite interesting a little aside, wasn't it? I was thinking, what did you think of Lord Featherington's appearance in the series? Well, yeah, I was very excited to see Sir Leon. Um, for anyone who doesn't know, Sir Leon was one of the knights in oh, BBC yes. Merlin, um, who famously, like, never died, whereas <laughs> other knights would just get, like, killed off every episode. So despite the fact it was, like, a family children's programme. At one point, they killed off nearly all the knights in the last episode, too. Yeah, but Sir Leon, he so became nice. an icon. Um, and Rupert Young is a very respected actor who we also saw. He was in the London production of Dear Evan Hansen. Mm. Uh, again, we were very excited about the fact it was Sir Leon. I'm pretty sure he was also in a Philadelphia advert as well. Yes, he was. Yes. <laughs> Another of his uh, highlights. Young, we are biggest fans. So, yeah, come on the show. <laughs> <laughs> we'll have an in-depth analysis. Of Sir Leon only and nothing else. <laughs> yeah, well, I know it was fun to see him. I love What I liked about his character um, was that you didn't know what his game was. And the Featheringtons are very much kind of, we've established, like, scheming and kind of, like, trying to stay on top of things but I think they've also done a good job of making Lady Featherington quite sympathetic yeah despite the fact that some of her actions are not very you know particularly Mom. she would support yeah <laughs> trying to marry off her daughters in in quite kind of elaborate ways yes um 
but I think yeah it was quite interesting that kind of push and pull between the two of them and what was Sir Leon slash Cousin Jack's real game at the end of it and what was his so so yeah I I enjoyed his performance and um his inclusion I think at times um because there were lots of those different plot lines going on would have just had this like really intense scene with Kate and Anthony and then suddenly we were like over at I was a bit like oh this feels like a bit of a kind of gear change um but yeah I remain interested in that storyline and I liked how um Penelope did have very much have more to do this season with the discovery of um or the, you know with our discovery anyway as the audience of her being Lady Wasserdam so yeah I'm I'm looking forward to seeing where the Feverington's go in the future what about yeah. you um I definitely want to see Penelope and Colin because they've been teasing their relationship and I feel like what they're doing right is they show how much Colin cares about her and then Colin like does something like slightly does slightly bossy and mm. then wanders off again like the fact that he was going after Marina and things like that and all these characters keep hinting how much Penelope likes him so yeah he's a bit clueless isn't it'll he? be interesting to see how they do a season on that equally actually Benedict like we haven't really seen much of him aside from art school slash you know general orgies and milieu and things like mm. that so We've been really twice in the past. <laughs> um, so I do, that'll be really interesting. Um, but is there anything else I want to discuss? Well, one thing I did see is that while the next book in the series uh, is the book about Benedict, Benedict, that apparently it was kind of hinted in some interviews, possibly with Shonda Rhimes or maybe with Chris Van Dusen, who's actually the showrunner, I'm not sure which, that they might break from that um, sequence. I would not be surprised if they did Colin and Penelope next because they've really laid a lot of groundwork. Yeah, there. and they can't do another season of it, can they? It would. I think if they did another season of just that kind of her longing and him being oblivious, it might feel a little bit repetitive. And I suppose they have to start getting people realizing that she's Lady Whistledown and she can't marry him without him knowing. Also, she can't. But Lady Whistledown has to kind of keep printing, I suppose. But equally, yeah. it's like we have to record in the end with the fact that people are going to find out and the Penelope is going to be essentially ostracized for a while from the Bridgertons it must happen you know so yeah and I think also like just from a kind of show running perspective while they might hope that it might go for like eight seasons and it could well do and we have to hope it does <laughs> there's also like something to do with kind of keeping up momentum and they do have you know Nicola Coughlin she is very much also kind of a breakout star like people love her so I think it would make a lot of sense to kind of focus on them next than it would Benedict. They could continue to have Benedict like in the background preparing for whatever is going to happen in his season. Yeah. But it would make sense. So. It would. We don't know how much of it, they? Plus, oh, by the way, my comments are not in, about, about the Colin book and not informed by any knowledge of the Colin book. I don't really remember much about it. Right. Um, but I do think that they'll have to reveal to Colin that she's wrestled down. And then she'll have to reckon with the fact that like she's kind of done a lot of people dirty. But We'll see. Yeah, I think there's a lot of, um, you know, we said about Anthony kind of having a like, what's the word, like a personal crisis. <laughs> a lot of crises, no, but like a kind of um, journey of redemption. Oh, sure. Uh, I think that definitely Colin would have to have that. Like for Colin to be a romantic lead, I think he has a bit of work to do in terms of like we've not really seen him successfully. Oh, trying to take out a fraudulent loan at this point, and I'm like, what are you doing? Stop it! Gosh. And then I think even with Penelope, I think she kind of has a lot of growing to do. Angie, of course, like we still don't really know why she like became Lady Whistledown. Like she's not really talked about that. Yeah, ever. and those two characters don't really match, do they? In terms of how spiteful Lady Whistledown is. 
and how much she wants to bait the queen. Aside from like getting money and stuff. It is interesting, isn't it? Yeah, because unfortunately it's starting to paint Penelope as like quite a nasty person, I think. I don't think they mean to, and I don't think she is. But I do think that like the continued way that she, because they need whistle down as the gossip, gossip girl thing, you know? Yeah. But actually, no one respected who Gossip Girl actually was in the end. And it's hard to understand their motives. And they were just kind of, you know, being a bit mean about lots of people all the time. Yeah. No, it will be interesting. I mean, I, I think it kind of works for me because Penelope grew up in this very oh, yeah. unpleasant household. You know, while the Featheringtons might be fun to watch on screen, you wouldn't want to live with them. So it kind of makes sense to me that she has kind of become... It, or she has a side to her that comes out in her writing that is is quite kind of vicious at times. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think there's a lot to unpack there. So I definitely would be on board for them focusing on her and Colin in the next season. But who knows? Maybe there will. Maybe it will be Benedict and somebody. Benedict and who? So on that note, yeah. eight more seasons, please. Early on, give us a call. Yeah. <laughs> right. Well, that is it. Thank you so much for listening to our deep dive into Bridgerton. And also thank you so much again to Sophie for coming on the show. As we said, her book is out now in all good bookstores online and also in audiobook and ebook. And if you want to follow her account about Egon Schiele, it's Egon Schiele's Women. Yeah. Equally, if you want to follow us, uh, we are on Twitter at Real LLW. We are on Instagram at Loves Labors Watch, all lowercase. And if you have any business inquiries or PR inquiries, please email our business email, which is loveslaborswatch at gmail.com. Anything I've missed? I think that covers it all. So yeah, thank you so much for listening and we'll be back soon. Yeah, goodbye. Bye.